Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on the time zone you're all in. You're very welcome to this uh, seminar uh, on populism. Um, my name is Tim Besley, and uh, apart from the intrinsic interest in the topic that we're going to hear about, this is also a launch event for the LSE Public Policy Review, a new journal that we've created as an interface between academia and policy and to address important cross-cutting issues from a multidisciplinary perspective uh, that allows us to showcase many of the important academic ideas and make them available, accessible to policymakers um, in order to facilitate policy dialogue, something that lies very much at the heart of the LSE's mission. Um, this afternoon, we have a, a wonderful panel uh, and the proceedings will be uh, moderated by Jesse Norman. Uh, Jesse, a, a good friend of mine, is an MP uh, and also financial secretary to the Treasury, but has, uh, like many members of the panel, a background also in academia, um, having taken a PhD in mathematical philosophy before turning his hand to two very influential books on uh, Edmund Burke and on Adam Smith, among his many uh, writing. So I can't think of anybody more fitting to lead this seminar. Um, and I will hand over to Jesse now and thank him for agreeing to do this. And he will introduce the panelists and then lead the discussion uh, that follows. Over to you, Jesse. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Tim. And, and thanks to the LSE uh, School of Public Policy and the Spinoza Foundation. And congratulations to you on the new journal. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce the uh, panel members today uh, in the order in which we're going to invite them to speak. And I start with uh, Michael Ignatiev, uh, who, as you will know, many of you, is the uh, president and director of Central European University and a noted author and uh, also academic. Um, uh, then we're going to have uh, Professor Sarah Gobold, who is a, uh, uh, who is a professor at the um, I'm sorry, I said Ho uh, Hobart, I should say, who is a professor uh, of government at the LSE. Uh, and then uh, finally, Andres uh, Velasco, uh, who is uh, dean of the public policy school at LSE. And uh, what is a fascinating subtext, as, hint, uh, as uh, Tim has mentioned, is that both uh, uh, Andres and uh, Michael have had um, uh, important roles in uh, public policy and in politics. And uh, have uh, in different ways faced off forms of populism. And so we're hoping to bring both academic insight and also um, practical experience and of policy and policymaking and indeed politics to bear in this conversation. Uh, if we can start then uh, with you, uh, Michael, perhaps uh, you could, uh, you've written this wonderful paper in the new journal, and I wonder if you could just perhaps uh, summarize, touch on some of its key themes and, and lead us off into the conversation. Thanks very much, uh, Jesse, and uh, welcome to everybody here. I, I see 280 plus people uh, tuning in, and um, it's a delight to have the chance to talk to you, and it's great to be part of this venture and to contribute to this volume. I I'm speaking to you as a former recovering politician who has, as an academic and a university leader, had to confront right-wing authoritarian populism in Hungary in the form of Viktor Orban, who threw our university out of Hungary. As you know, we're now establishing ourselves in 
Vienna, so don't cry for me, Argentina. Uh, but I come to you from that practical perspective. And I think I start my thinking about populism with where this word is in popular parlance, at least among left liberals or progressive liberals like myself. For most of us, populism is a swear word. Uh, populism is even a risk to democracy. Populism is a threat to the institutional balance of a democratic order. Uh, the rhetoric, the style, the discourse of populism is antithetical to the deliberative, calm, quiet, uh, compromise-driven style of liberal democratic politics. So we start with with populism as a, as a swear word, and I want to say, um, have a rather different take on populism. I, I think the first historical point I'd make is that populist challenges to the elites who run liberal democracies are a very old story indeed. Populism goes back into the 19th century. There are recurrent challenges to the elites who run liberal democracies, and there are recurrent challenges to the basic premises upon which a democratic order uh, works. Two particular challenges uh, I have in mind. One of them is populists invariably challenge the legitimacy of representation, representative democracy. They challenge the authority of those who purport to represent the people and claim that they represent the people better. That's kind of challenge number one. And challenge number two, they challenge the rule of law. They say, we don't like judge-made law. We want majority rule to prevail over um, the rule of law in uh, liberal democracies. And this lays bare certain structural features of liberal democracy that are, in fact, highly contestable. Um, the role of representation in democracy is always very controversial. I've been a representative. I've fought elections in Canada and um, my right to represent my voters is based on the fact that I won an election. But people are constantly saying to elected representatives in the British House and Congress, you don't represent anybody. Um, so representation is a contested area of democratic life and uh, the rule of law is equally so. Um, the rule of law during the Brexit debate figured prominently uh, people saying we want majority rule, we don't want um, a judge-made law. Um, it, it seems to me that instead of seeing these challenges to liberal democracy as presenting a crisis, a threat, uh, we should see them as uh, identifying inherently contestable elements of liberal democracy, which are under recurrent challenge. And it leads me to make another point about democracy in general. If you've, if you've been an elected representative, maybe Jesse Norman would concur with me, one's lived experience of being in a democracy is that it's crisis all the time. It's contestation all the time. Uh, it's only in, in, in libraries and in seminars that people model democracy in stasis, in equilibrium. In fact, the nature of a democracy is that we contest and challenge the legitimacy of representation. We challenge the balance between the rule of law and democracy all the time. Populism is simply the politicized version of that contestation. And so it seems a threat to elites. And in a sense, it seems to me the challenge is a good one. Um, 
I think it's pretty obvious a guy like me would vote to remain uh, in the recent referendum in 2016. But, you know, the challenge, the populist challenge to the received elite conviction that being in, in uh, Britain was good for, uh, being in Europe was good for Britain, uh, came from essentially outside the political system and swept all before it. And so naturally the elites thought, oh my God, the system itself is challenged. I don't, I don't think so. I think of populism as having the enormously positive uh, element of challenging the legitimacy of representation and challenging uh, the legitimacy of this line we draw between the domain appropriate to majority rule and the domain of democracy, which is the rule of law. And that line of demarcation between majority rule and the rule of law is, is inherently contestable. It's fought over all the time. Trump, for example, in the United States is not the first president to rail against judge-made law. That goes back, in fact, to liberal heroes like Franklin Roosevelt. So we need to understand them. I guess what I'm saying is that populism encourages us to think about democracy differently, to think about it as a place where we debate the very guardrails that define democracy, the line between majority rule and rule of law, the line between majority rule and minority rights. All these things seem to me are in play all the time. So then the question becomes, when does populism amount to a challenge, a threat to democracy? I'm telling you it actually renews democracy. So when does it become a challenge, a risk, a menace, a threat? Well, here my Hungarian experience has helped me a bit uh, because Hungary looks like a democracy, talks like a democracy, walks like a democracy. Viktor Orban has won four straight elections. Uh, he has a mandate from the people. He has the uh, legitimacy confirmed by majority rule, but he has gone after a systematic elimination or weakening or neutering of the element, other elements that make a democracy a democracy, namely independent institutions like universities. They've driven us out. Um, a free press, uh, 85 to 90% of the press is now in the hands or in the ownership of his supporters. The courts have essentially been neutered. Um, I have been thrown out of Hungary, but I have no right of appeal. Again, don't cry for me. It's not about me. I'm trying to describe the ways in which a populist authoritarian can use majority rule to systemically weaken uh, uh, the stability, institutional stability of democracy. So I would say to sum up and conclude, um, populism is a source of renewal, of challenge, of contestation to democracy. It forces us to look at democracy as an arena of constant contestation. The limit case, the case where it's dangerous, is where an authoritarian leader uses the legitimacy of majority rule to systemically undermine the counter-majoritarian institutions, rule of law, freedom of the press, free institutions that keep us free. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. That's a wonderfully clear uh, introduction. Um, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about it, if I may just ask you about it, is you, you draw a distinction between, as it were, challenging the legitimacy of uh, uh, a state of affairs, a, a polity, um, a threat to 
the rule of law and the contrast between the rule of law and a majoritarian principle and democracy. Uh, but you also, at the end there, highlighted the importance of independent institutions, which in a way sit alongside those two other things. Um, do you think, uh, could you say a little bit more about that? And also, do you think that there's a, uh, uh, do you think that there are left forms of populism as well as right forms of populism? Uh, could there be a centrist populism? How does that, how do those things work out? I think there can be a left form of populism. I mean, the, the, uh, uh, some of the political parties in Spain would conform to that. Um, I don't like any use of populism as a swear word. Um, um, attempts to mobilize the people, to say to the people, your elites have serving you poorly, we will represent you better, seems to me a absolutely standard uh, political move from the left and from the right. Um, your question about institutions is obviously near to my heart because it's not customary, I think, for us to think of free universities, for example, as being constitutive of democracy. And I think uh, what I mean by free institutions is simply um, institutions that are self-governing communities and, and university would be one. But I think we also need to look at other institutions that regulatory institutions, um, you know, the people who keep air travel safe, the people who um, look after other public goods, must be independent um, and and that sent that sense of of free institutions being constitutive of any liberal democratic order uh, seems to me very important and what is striking about authoritarian populism anti-democratic populism is that it seeks systemically to weaken the independence of free institutions everywhere you look uh, and and that seems to me is is the warning sign. I'm trying to differentiate, in other words, between populism, which renews and strengthens democracy, and populism, which can be lethal to it. Yes, thank you. So there's an astringent value, but there's also a potential undermining threat. Should we go to Sarah now? Um, uh, uh, Sarah, um, uh, that's a perfect opportunity, in a way, just to explore some of the ideas that in your paper about, about populism. Uh, uh, do please uh, take the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. And yeah, that's a wonderful, I will focus more really on what do we think is going to happen with, with these sort of populist politician that Michael uh, is talking about. And it's a great opportunity to be a part of the, this panel and to launch uh, the LSE uh, public policy review which of course is uh, you know, a wonderful forum to bring social science to bear on some of these contemporary issues. But I, th I think it also really uh, illustrates the challenges of doing so because when we wrote our papers, as, as Michael will recall, uh, we weren't in a pre-COVID world yet because we didn't know that COVID was around the corner. So we didn't uh, address the kind of issues of what populism post-COVID might look like directly. And I think that does sort of uh, raise the question about whether or not how and whether social scientists can say something uh, that's more than slow journalism when it comes to these uh, very pertinent issues uh, that isn't already sort of out of date when it's published. And of course, as you may expect, I'm going to say that the answer is, is uh, yes, that we can as social scientists contribute to understanding even fast moving social phenomenon, such as the consequences of pandemics, elections and so on. 
on, but not because we're the fastest in print, so because we have the catchiest titles, uh, but because we have some of the theoretical and empirical tools uh, that can explain and see patterns and relationships that otherwise get lost in this very fast-moving news cycle. And here I think the LSE, this new journal, the LSE Public Policy Review, can play an important role in bringing some of this cutting-edge social science research to bear in some of these challenges. So I'm going to try and take up this challenge today in, in answering not exactly the question I answered uh, uh, in the paper, uh, but what we can learn from those pieces about what populism may, how populism may fare in the post-COVID world. And we know, of course, the saying that it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, so, so bear with me. Uh, but uh, I'll try and sort of say what the study of populist parties and politicians can tell us about what might be around the corner for populism. So on the one hand, we might think that populism will struggle post-COVID or indeed in the current COVID world. So in the piece I wrote with Catherine DeVries uh, and in a, in a just published book on political entrepreneurs, we write that uh, populist challenger parties have been on the rise in Europe and of course also in North America uh, for the past decades and have really reshaped politics as we know it. So unlike mainstream parties that have generally experienced a steady electoral decline, we've seen these populist challenges causing a lot of uh, electoral upsets. Uh, Michael already mentioned uh, Brexit. There's, of course, also the election of Trump. But uh, we can think of another, a lot of other examples, like in France in the 2017 uh, presidential elections. We didn't have either the mainstream centre-right or the mainstream centre-left uh, party represented in the final runoff. Instead, we had a newcomer, the centrist Macron, uh, against uh, populist right-wing Marine Le Pen uh, of the national rally. And France is not the only example. Uh, the year after, in the Italian elections, we had the, the centre-left uh, uh, party uh, beaten to the top spot instead by um, a, a, a radical right-wing populist league and a populist five-star movement. So these sort of uh, changes have been seen around Europe. But, but now are we, one question is whether or not the tides are turning for these populist parties, because what we've seen in the last six months is, is a sort of revival of traditional mainstream parties. Certainly, there's evidence showing that in the early stages of pandemic, incumbents around the world experienced rising popularity. And, and not surprisingly, in times of crisis, citizens rally around the flag. They rally around their incumbent politicians. And, and in many countries, like in Germany, uh, the alternative for Germany, for example, have seen their lowest popularity. And even in the UK, we hardly see Nigel Farage and the, he's not getting any airtime anywhere, which suggests that the sort of appetite for that kind of populism that he represents is simply not there. And instead, voters appear to be more interested in competent evidence-based responses to the crisis and not the sort of anti-establishment rhetoric that Michael outlined very well in his interventions. Um, and this raises the question of whether after decades of rising popularity of populists, whether this COVID pandemic will bring about a revival of the mainstream. And what we do in our piece, Catherine and I, uh, in, in a new journal, is we really conceive of the political marketplace as a sort of struggle between these long-standing dominant parties and the disruptive challenger parties. Um, and that helps us a bit, I think, in understanding uh, why the challengers, the populist parties, have done less well in this pandemic. And that's because also, as Michael uh, described, that they really thrive by attacking uh, the credibility and the expertise of mainstream parties and 
and by mobilizing um, new issues that drive a wedge within the constituency of these parties, like here in Britain, uh, the, the EU issue or other places, the migration issue. On the other hand, we see mainstream parties flourishing from ideological pragmatism and ways to demonstrate their competence and their managerial skills. And of course, when you have an unexpected crisis like COVID, um, then dominant parties can bring on their long experience in government and showcase their competence by acting quickly and decisively. And this boosts their popularity, as we've seen, at least in the short term. And evidence from across Europe have shown that citizens have rallied around their political leaders and institutions. Um, on the other hand, populist parties, they thr thrive when they can credibly mobilize against the government and the establishment. And it's been very difficult for most populist parties to get some of their issues like migration and Euroscepticism on the political agenda in Europe. Instead, the political agenda has been, been dominated by um, hospital beds and PPE and economic rescue packages and so on. And challenger parties that often lack the government experience, they can't really credibly say that they would have done a better job. Um, and even if there's some, some early research that suggests where populists are in government, like in Brazil uh, and in, in the US, they, these governments have fared less well in terms of responding quickly uh, to the crisis. So just finally, um, I want us to think about whether that is then a sort of long-term phenomenon. Do we think now voters have really fed up and tired with this sort of um, uh, populist promises and divisive slogans and they want sort of evidence-based politics. And this might be tempting to conclude that, I think, in, on the basis of the early responses to the crisis. But I think the research suggests we, uh, we need to be a bit um, careful about concluding that because we need to distinguish between these very short-term responses by voters and the more long-term crisis effect and how populists can exploit that. So in the short term, as, as I've outlined, there's evidence that confirms citizens have rallied around the flag. But in the long term, um, that might look very different. And just uh, in conclusion, there are some opportunities for populists, um, I think, post-COVID. Firstly, of course, they're quite well established, in, certainly in the European, but also, of course, in the Latin American uh, context. And that means that it's unlikely that the demand for these parties will dry up um, especially when uh, we go in the post-COVID world where the pandemic might well trigger a deep recession that populist challenges can exploit. There is um, political science and economic evidence suggesting that prolonged economic downturns make anti-establishment rhetoric of populist challenges and the nationalist messages of these populist parties are more popular with voters and seem more credible and pertinent to voters. And there's also uh, historical data showing um, that uh, the electoral support of right-wing populists in particular go up uh, during economic and financial crisis. So uh, the, the, the other thing that we discuss in our, um, in our journal piece is that the electorate has become far more volatile and just less loyal to parties. And that means while they right now might be flocking to the mainstream parties and thinking they're the ones that can deliver the good, that doesn't mean that they won't turn their backs on mainstream parties uh, in a post-COVID world. And although populist parties might find it difficult right now to exploit the immediate health crisis that allow these, uh, the, the mainstream parties to showcase their competence, that doesn't mean that populist entrepreneurs won't find innovative way to leverage the difficult economic times ahead and to cause more disruption. So I'll end it there. Thank you.
Uh, thank you very much indeed, Sarah. That was wonderful. And uh, I particularly like your, your definition of bad academia as slow journalism. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm still laughing at that. Um, uh, that was a wonderfully clear presentation. Again, can I just ask, so one of the things um, that you said well, I thought very, very interesting was to, I mean, Michael had talked about the challenge for good in a way, or potentially for good, to a democratic system that might come from a, from a popular or populist um, uh, uh, reaction, uh, another, uh, but also the threat, the potential to undermine. You, I think, highlight the extent to which populists can be working inside a political system, a party system, or outside it. And you pointed the idea that populists in government might actually have less good outcomes in the in the current pandemic, which is fascinating. Do you think that the that the um, voting system has any effect on this? Because it could be argued that one of the effects of a more proportional voting system is to bring fringe parties and they're into and therefore to give a uh, a voice to things and to indeed potentially make them mainstream to populist uh, uh, ideas and they might be a good thing or a bad thing but that at least it'd be something to evaluate now that that's a great question of course what we see is if you're in a proportional system the, the barriers to entry is just much lower so therefore we see just in a european context that there's hardly a country now that doesn't have a far-right populist party somehow represented uh, uh when they have more permissive electoral system and in contrast of course is um is the uk where those kind of parties have not been able to to gain representation certainly at the national level so the barriers to entry are higher but that means often then populist politicians will work another way, i.e. they will try to work within the established parties. And we can also see, for example, in France, where you also have a sort of majoritarian system that if you have, you know, a, a, a national rally politician like Marine Le Pen, if she were to gain power, let's say after a prolonged crisis in the next presidential election, then her power would be, would be very considerable. Whereas in a PR system, what you would have is there's a tend to be a sort of dilution of the influence of some of these parties because they have to go into coalitions. Of course, the, the, the one example we think about today is, is the American one. So we have a president that, uh, is, you know, displays all the sort of signs of populism, even when in power, he wants to be drain the swamp and be anti-establishment. And he also has some of the traits that Michael talked about in terms of undermining some of the established institutions, uh, independent institutions, even though it's very difficult in the US with very considerable checks and balances. So you're right in pointing out electoral system matters, but it doesn't mean that you can't have a populist challenge uh, in more majoritarian systems. And often when you do, it is more consequential because you don't have uh, the sort of uh, coalition arrangements that you tend to have in PR systems. Thank you very much indeed. That's a very, very uh, illuminating uh, reply. Um, shall we go now to uh, Andres, Dean Velasco, uh, Andres, and, uh, uh, and your paper, which again, I think very felicitously picks up uh, some, of these, uh, some of these themes. Thank you, Jesse. Good afternoon, everyone. Delighted to be here. I'm very happy to be sharing this digital stage with, uh, with you and with my friends, uh, Sarah and Michael. Uh, I cannot resist the temptation to begin with a bit of advertising. Um, the journal we're launching today is in fact housed at the School of Public Policy, which I happen to be the dean of. So I'm hoping that uh, people on this call will be buying it and reading it regularly. And with um, the leadership of Tim Besley, who's the editor of the journal, I'm sure 
future issues will be uh, very, very good, uh, as well as this issue, of course, which I happen to think is high quality. Uh, as uh, Jesse mentioned in the beginning, both Michael and I have been in politics. Uh, we've had to battle with populists of different kinds. Uh, my political experience is in Latin America, which parenthetically invented populism. So we'd like to claim our 10% our um, of the royalties. And as a result of that experience, I think my reading of populism is going to be a little bit darker and a little bit more pessimistic than we've heard from both, um, from both Michael and Sarah. I do not think populism is a swear word, as, uh, as Michael uh, uh, mentioned, but I think it is a style of doing politics which has very serious dangers built into it. Um, it is a style of doing politics in which you divide the world between the good and the bad, the decent, the indecent, the moral, and the corrupt. It is a kind of extreme identity politics because it's always us versus them. And because it is about identity and not about ideology, you can get left-wing populism and you can get right-wing populism. It just all depends on who the bad guy is. Under the left-wing populistic version, the... Um, the enemy, the bad guy, is the traditional elite, Wall Street, business, what have you. Uh, the right wing uh, will find a different enemy. Could be a minority, could be the country next door, in which case populism mixes with nationalism. Uh, but um, we see both kinds in the world today. And strikingly, at least from a Latin American perspective, where historically much of the populism has been left wing, what we see in the world today uh, on the rise seems to be right-wing populism. I think as a style of politics, there are two other features that are unique to populism, or at least striking, perhaps not entirely unique. One is that it denies complexity. Think of Trump. Migration is a very complex issue. It has lots of causes, social, political, environmental, economic, etc. To that, Trump simply says, build a wall. As a public policy, it is terrible. As a political artifice, it is very striking and probably very effective. Or think of what people like President Bolsonaro of Brazil have, have said. Oh, there's no virus. It's just an invention of the press to attack me. And I'm a real man. I can resist any virus. Again, um, from a public pol policy point of view, uh, uh, a most unwise thing to say, but politically very striking. From the denial of complexity, populism moves very quickly to a denial of pluralism, because if the world is simple, then um, there's only one right answer, one right public policy. And if anybody else espouses a different public policy, well, that person is not a legitimate member of our political community. That person must be an agent of some dark and obscure power or, or, or special interest. And as a result, I think populism, this style of doing politics, brings two things that are inherently dangerous. The first one is that it tends to lead to very bad collective decisions and to very bad public policies. And if you hail from Latin America, the history of bad economics and economic stagnation and recurrent crisis is both long and painful. But if you look at the ongoing pandemic, it is really striking how the worst performance in terms of, con uh, of containment, uh, of um, healthcare, of uh, deaths, in fact, is in countries that are populistic or governed by populists. And this includes very rich countries like the United States, middle-income countries uh, like Brazil, uh, low-income countries like India. 
The second danger, of course, and here I am going to be a little bit more pessimistic than Michael was, is that populism, not always, but very often, leads to an authoritarian slide. And this is not simply a mistake. It is not uh, happening by happenstance. It happens because it is built into populism. If you think the world is simple, or at least you say the world is simple, and you deny pluralism and the views of others are illegitimate, very quickly you're going to be uh, trying to get rid of the checks and balances, the consultation and the delegation that is uh, very typical of liberal democracy. So populism, uh, you know, Michael said, it can be a good challenge, uh, but it can be bad and authoritarian. I tend to think that it can be bad and authoritarian more often than not. Second point that I want to make uh, is a little, you know, talk a little bit about the uh, sources of populism. If you read sort of what I would call the prevailing Anglo-American narrative, uh, it runs something like this. We had a crisis 10 years ago. Wall Street got a bailout. Main Street uh, lost uh, the family home. Uh, inequality has been rising. Median wages have been stagnating. The people are angry. And when the people are angry, well, they vote for the populists. I think this account, which is very common, is uh, at best incomplete and at worst mostly wrong. Uh, for at least three reasons. The first one is that if you look at the social science empirical evidence, even for the US and the UK, the evidence is very mixed as to who voted for Trump, who voted for uh, Brexit, was it caused by unemployment, was it caused by culture, by value shift, et cetera, et cetera. But more importantly, if we look beyond the Anglosphere, uh, and we look at the rise of populism around the world, there are two other striking facts. First of all, we see populism rising in countries with a very strong economic performance. What do Turkey, the Philippines, uh, and India have in common? In the last 10 years, in those three countries, GDP has grown at more than 10% per year. Or if you look at Poland or Hungary or the Czech Republic, these are not countries where over the last decade or so the economy has been in crisis. And nonetheless, we see populism on the rise. So I'm tempted to conclude that in many countries outside the UK and the US, populism could be the child of economic gain, not necessarily of economic pain. Last but not least, if in fact angry citizens worried about income distribution and unemployment uh, were voting for the populists, what we ought to be seeing around the world is a massive wave of left-wing populism. And we see a bit of that. We saw it in Greece. We see it in Spain. We've seen it in Venezuela, of course, in Mexico nowadays. But the really big striking fact in the world today is right-wing populism. So I'm pretty sure that uh, a mechanistic account that says bad economic performance gives us populism is not quite the right way to think about it. Don't take me wrong, I am not denying that there's a lot of inequality and a lot of injustice and a great deal of unemployment and suffering in the world, there is. But what mediates between economic outcomes and behavior at the, at the voting booth is something called politics. Politics is uh, a big messy combination of narratives, identities, perceptions. And unless we under understand those identities and narratives, we don't really understand the sources of populism. Last but not least, if Jesse will allow me, I'd like to say a little bit about uh, the future of populism in the COVID and post-COVID world. And uh, to do that, let me point out that 
in my view, a danger of the prevailing narrative that says bad policy performance, bad economics delivers populism, is that um, the upshot of that is a kind of technocratic illusion. If you get the policies right, populism goes away. If you get the policies wrong, well, you've got populists all over the place. As I began by saying uh, a few minutes ago, and I think Sarah said it too, when you look at COVID and when you look at the economic toll that comes after the pandemic, it is pretty striking that the populist countries, whether the US or India or Brazil or Mexico, have done very, very badly indeed. So if it were in fact very mechanistic and simple, uh, we should all be celebrating, or at least, you know, I would be celebrating because the populists have done very badly. And as a result, uh, well, next time around, the voters are going to kick them out of office. And I wish that were true. I wish I could conclude that, but I am not too sure, precisely because uh, the narrative that comes out of this pandemic more than the facts themselves or the facts alone will be what matters. And let me end by suggesting that if we look at previous crises uh, in which lots of people suffer a great deal, uh, the narrative that emerges from that crisis can be one that is very good or very bad for populists. In 1945, a country like the United Kingdom emerged from the world war with a devastating economy, with a great deal of suffering, with many dead, but nonetheless with a national narrative of a shared uh, project, a shared victory, uh, greater social cohesion because the rich kid who'd gone to Oxford and the poor kid who was a minor son from the north of England had fought side by side. And of course, victory always delivers a bit of cohesion and happiness, right? So a very large crisis produced a narrative which was anti-populistic. By contrast, 10 years ago, you could claim that from a technical point of view, Barack Obama handled the crisis pretty well. And as a macroeconomist, I'd be willing to say that. But nonetheless, the narrative that came out of that crisis was one of division, injustice, Wall Street gets the bailout, Main Street, Main Street gets nothing, they lose their homes. So I think the open question with which I'm going to end is, you know, once COVID is over and once we go back to normal, whatever that might look like, Will it be 1945 or will it be 2010? I am not sure, but I am somehow more inclined to think that it will be 2010 and therefore good for the populists, even though their policy, their governing performance has been very bad indeed. Let me stop there. Well, uh, uh, thank you very much indeed, Andres. And um, uh, uh, let me, if I may, just pick up a very interesting theme that you touched on in your uh, Discussion. So you talk uh, in the paper uh, 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 about a technocratic fantasy, uh, in the talk about a technocratic illusion, I think I'm right in saying, and you, and you contrast the, the story about economics, uh, both inside academia and outside, with a story about identity. Uh, and uh, so, so really an observation and then a question. So the observation is the philosopher in me wants to distinguish, even within the economic case between what you might call context, cause, and trigger. And so there are multiple different ways in which uh, 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 an economic set of inputs or context could be, could be shaping uh, the emergence of this, it seems to me, and, and, and could to more or less provide a fertile ground for I identity. Um, uh, but the second question really was, uh, or but the question really was, um, of course, your, the, the, the story you tell of 
a style of politics of this Manichaean opposition, uh, the other, fear of the other, demonization. Is there any form of populism that isn't in that sense um, uh, irreducibly personal? Coming down to a kind of individual story of uh, a, a leader's struggle against uh, uh, a kind of anti-democratic elite or establishment. Thank you, Jesse. I think that's a very, very good question because um, you used story and personal. And I think anybody who's been in politics, anybody who's run for office, you have, I have, Michael has, we learned that running for office is all about storytelling, um, yes, yes. right? It's, yes. um, it really you know, is. Archetypes of classical literature, the prodigal son, you know, the hardworking person who makes it up in the world, the defender of, of the people, those are all stories that get told. Um, and I think that's a very relevant question because what is at stake today, I think, is not whether, you know, reasonable people with good economic policies educated at places like the LSE uh, will be able to put forward policies that are so good that the voters will say, yes, let's go that way. Those policies are so much better. I think the real question is whether those reasonable policies and those non-confrontational, non-xenophobic approaches to policymaking can be described, told precisely uh, in such a story, maybe personal, maybe collective. You know, the world may be uh, moving toward greater globalization, or at least has been moving, maybe not anymore, uh, in economics uh, and in many dimensions, but politics remains very much uh, a creature of the nation state. The stories we tell are stories about the nation, the people. Um, and I think liberals have made a tremendous mis mistake uh, in uh, giving uh, or handing over the story of the nation, the story of uh, patriotism, the story of shared achievement very often to the right, which of course turns it often into something nasty. Uh, in the paper, I cite the, uh, the distinction by George Orwell between nation, uh, nationalism and patriotism. Nationalism is about hating others. Patriotism is, being, is about being proud uh, of what your country stands for. So I would like to think, uh, and I mentioned this uh, at the end of the paper that is in the, uh, in, in, in the journal, that um, you know, if people like Joe Biden are going to beat Trump, it is not only because uh, they have better policies, it is because they can tell a better story about uh, a country that comes together, not because we all share the same color of skin or the same religion or the same background, a country that comes together because we stand for decent, humane, universal principles. That's hard to do. It is not impossible. But if liberals don't learn how to do that, I'm afraid we're going to have lots of powerful populists running the world for a very, very long time. Well, um, thank you, Andres. Uh, and may I, before we get into the general discussion amongst the panel, let me um, uh, doff my metaphorical cap to you all for such excellent timekeeping, which has allowed uh, uh, a wider conversation to, or will allow, I hope, a wider conversation to flourish. We've been inundated with questions from uh, uh, members of uh, um, the wider community who are watching this, and we'll come to those in a moment. But if I may, I'd like to just raise some common themes amongst the panel and just see if we can pick out some of this more, more uh, uh, closely. So one of the themes that um, I think is a, a really interesting question is the extent to which uh, some of this challenge to uh, the establishment, some of the uh, uh, astringent effects can tip over into 
uh, as it were, the, the undermining effects that Michael talked about, um, might be enabled by changes in technology. Um, and, and you could imagine that changes in technology might have several different uh, kinds of effect. I mean, one would be allowing more, as it were, an encour encouraging virtue signaling. Now, virtue signaling, as any politician will know, is hardly a new thing. <laughs> it's been going on for centuries. But um, uh, it does seem to allow these very personal stories to become memes and to spread very quickly. Another would be the thought that uh, uh, you can't get a story about wider collective endeavor going because there's always some subgroup that can point to personal injustice. Mm. Um, and I just wonder whether or not between those two phenomena and this extraordinary capacity of people to only, only increasingly to listen to people like themselves, whether you're seeing uh, 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 conditioning effects that might be changing both the nature of populism and also the, the, the policy reaction to it. I don't know if any of you would like to pick that up in the first instance. Um, I, sorry, Michael. Oh, I, I, just something on the, on the organizational side of it in terms of these changes uh, in technology that you talk about. Because, of course, what technology has done is to really allow sort of populist disruptors to burst onto the scene much more quickly and effectively than they might otherwise do. Because the Five Star Movement in Italy is an example where traditionally you might need a sort of a big uh, economic backer or you need a big sort of grassroots system to knock on doors and distribute leaflets. What you can do now with the internet, with social media and so on is you can, another example is here in the UK is the Brexit Party that emerged, came out of from almost nowhere and, and won the European Parliament elections in, in 2019. I think it's hard to imagine that uh, without the power of technology that they would have been able to do so so quickly. I mean, you could whether is that a good thing or a bad thing, it's certainly something that is a challenge to the mainstream where they had a sort of resource advantage that they don't have uh, anymore. A, a concern, which is one you raise, is this segmentation of the public sphere. You know, one of the things I think is central to, to democracies is that we have a common space where we can discuss ideas and also where we can challenge them. But if we all sort of are in our own echo chambers and hearing different things and, and seeing the world from very different perspectives, which the US is, I think, an example of this sort of not only political, but also effective polarization we see where uh, it, it's very problematic for, for for democracy so so that's a sort of a dark side of of some of these technological changes yes i'd love to come to michael on that in a second but w one thing that does is to play squarely to your language sarah of uh the economic language of entrepreneurship in yeah. populism i mean that seems to fit very well with that yes michael oh just a very brief thought to follow on what sarah says which is just disinhibition i mean one of the things that is a central problem for any society is how to manage hatred. We don't like each other much. We hate each other. We compete. Um, uh, societies are very conflictual. Lots of people are left out. Lots of people are hurt. Lots of people are damaged. Um, this is not a warm bath. Um, one of the effects of, of the social media has been to um, <clears throat> disinhibit uh, resentment, disinhibit uh, hatred, disinhibit anger. Anybody who's run for office knows you don't look at your own media, your social media feed, because you just you wouldn't get up in the morning if you did. Um, it's just the price of business. And I see Jesse appearing to mm. 
nod and acknowledge what I'm saying. Um, I just think the disinhibiting, disinhibiting factor of social media is very important and feeds in and rather exacerbates some of the issues that Sarah has, has, has raised. Jesse, if I, if I may, one, one thought on this very important issue. Clearly, technology has mattered. Sarah gave us a somewhat optimistic account. Um, yes, it is much easier to organize, uh, mobilize, and run for office. Uh, however, that ought to apply to everybody, to the nice guys and the not-so-nice guys, the centrists and the extremists. And I think the paradox, or maybe it is not a paradox, is that the extremists seem to know how to do this very well, and uh, the centrists find it very difficult. I've tried myself, so I can tell you how difficult it is. Which, which suggests that technology is one element, but it cannot be the whole story. Yes, Macron was sort of an insurgent. Uh, uh, his was a new party. It triumphed. Um, but he got a lucky break because the guy who's supposed to win was immersed in a scandal at the very last minute. Maybe without that, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, believe me that I've spent many sleepless nights looking around the world for other examples of you know, upstart centrist parties which stormed the Bastille with good ideas and, and an iPhone. They're very, very hard to find which suggests that on top of technology, you've, you've got to have something else, and that something else is typically what Michael just mentioned, uh, an exploitation uh, of what you might call, you know, politely identity cleavages in society, or maybe less politely, you know, the underlying hatred and nastiness in society. Uh, and uh, we centers are not very good at uh, manipulating that sort of thing. Other people are. Yes, I suppose you get the classic um, problem of, of, of energetic, um, energetic inter interest groups or splinters versus a, a fundamentally more torpid majority. And then, of course, all the more energized by these narratives of hatred and division. Right. Well, that's very good. Let me just raise one other question. And then, if I may, we'll turn to, uh, to questions from... Um, our wider audience. Um, and this really has to, a, a question to do with uh, the policy response. Now, one of the questions came in actually has been, you know, what should Joe Biden do if he was elected to, uh, to deal with um, um, strains of populism that might be emerging in America? But I wonder if, if uh, any of you as panelists has um, uh, ideas about what might go into a, a playbook or uh, a set of ideas or a set of policies that could be used to combat uh, these things, and and if it is a matter of reclaiming the public square, to to do that as well. I'll, I'll offer one thought on that. Uh, I I think the easy part is what Joe Biden ought to do once he gets to the White House. The hard part is how we make sure he gets there. Um, and there, uh, I I would like to recall a uh, a quote. I, I wrote a book on liberalism and populism with a with a fellow Chilean um, LSE graduate, um, in which we cite uh, an American political consultant who worked for Trump, and he says most modern elections today are a contest between a candidate who says I have a ten point plan to deal with your problems, and a candidate who says they're all crooks, kick them out. If this is a contest between Biden with a 10-point plan that is very, very good, I have no doubt, you know, the best minds in America will go into it, and a candidate who says, you know, the pandemic is the fault of the Chinese, kick them all out, um, I fear that the 10-point plan is going to win. Which takes us back to the issue that uh, I was trying to emphasize 
in the earlier uh, set of comments. What the Bidens of the world need is a compelling narrative which goes far beyond that 10-point plan. And that's where moderate labor in the UK, forgive me for saying this, Michael, but maybe liberals in Canada and, uh, and, uh, and many others have had such difficulty putting together, right? Um, that's where we uh, often uh, come up short. Yes, thank you. Um, Michael, Sarah? Um, uh, yes, just this is there's a sort of very, of course, the US world, as we talked about earlier, it's a very majoritarian system. You know, you go with one or the other. What tends to happen, of course, in most of Europe is that these mainstream parties have to think about how to uh, the policy response to these populists that are there. And, and, and there's been sort of three responses. One is to accommodate them if they talk a lot about migration or your skepticism, you sort of try to move closer. And it hasn't been particularly successful always uh, in the proportional system because, you know, they're not, they, the, the, the populists still have a sort of first mover advantage. They seem more like the real deal. And then you can sort of try to ignore it, which is what a lot of mainstream parties did for a long time. We're just going to go on with our agenda. Um, but one thing that's been interesting recently uh, is that there's been a sort of very very open challenge to some of the ideas from someone like Macron is a good example of that. He's sort of gone straight in on sort of populist territory. He didn't try and talk to someone else. He was very openly, you know, in favor of globalization, migration, European integration. Not everyone was going to like it, but he wasn't shying away from it. Uh, and, and that's also what we see uh, from some of the green wave we see in parts of Europe now, which interestingly also sort of tackles that identity politics, but from the opposite pole. But I think some of the mainstream parties that are, that are suffering, like the Social Democrats, they're sort of, they don't really know which of those strategies to adopt. And I think that that uh, is a problem for them. That's fascinating. And before we come to Michael, I mean, one observation on that might be that Macron knew he was going to take a hit in terms of the um, reaction to the, his, his own uh, very direct engagement. But he, he might have calculated that people would credit him more on the identity side for his honesty and directness and willingness to take it on in a world which everyone might have thought was full of um, political fudge and equivocation. I mean, yes, of course, you know, he hasn't been a, in a, a, you know, he's still in hot water. It's not like his, his term has been all that successful. So I'm not sure everyone wants to sort of copy him. And it's not like the, the populist radical right has gone away. But certainly he is an example of someone who, is, who has fought that battle head on. Yes, the two strategies. You either, as it were, ignore or you directly engage. Michael, yeah. did you want to comment? Very briefly, my career, as everybody knows, was a fabulous success. So I'm absolutely qualified to describe how to rebut the populist uh, tide and get us all into office. I, 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 I do think there, liberal progressivism is is at the moment paralyzed by um, a kind of politics of aggregation in which we try to be agreeable to every minority group that we aggregate into into the tent and you that's just not going to work um and we're i think paralyzed by virtue signaling uh but are deaf to the ways in which virtue signaling alienates people it it treats other people's um convictions and fears with uh, a kind of contempt so all I'm doing is giving you the diagnosis. I think virtue signaling is killing us, and I think this kind of politics of aggregating interests is killing us. 
um, it, it connects to Andres's point about we got to get a narrative, but it's it's a narrative about we, we the people, uh, and that's always in a bit of an illusion. Uh, but the great political movements that create a sense of I am vocalizing on behalf of the interests that we share as a people is the way to way to win. But it's bloody difficult at the moment because we're a very divided, unhappy, uh, hate-filled countries that we just are and and and, and the hate is not uh, shouldn't be condescended to some of the hatred and anger and bitterness is is runs very deep relates to very deep failings of our societies and so uh, you know liberal progressives get nowhere by trying to be nice to everybody they get nowhere by saying how virtuous they are they get a little uh, somewhere by listening very carefully and then sticking to their bloody guns through hell and high water. There's absolutely nothing to be gained with equivocating or trying to be understanding about uh, racial hatred, for example, about anti-gay uh, hostility and hatred by um, hatred of foreigners and outsiders. It just you you got to run that flagpole up and say that's what the hell I believe. That, that'll get you somewhere. It won't get you the whole way, though. Jesse, if well, I may, one, one further thought on this, because it's a fascinating subject. Completely agree with the last point Michael made, not, not just on tactical grounds, but also just on, on principle, right? Um, but, but going back to tactics, uh, I think you're absolutely right in pointing out, and I think Sarah said it too, that um, in this world in which voters perceive that every politician poll tested every word that he or she uttered coming across as somebody who says things that are unexpected and which seem to come from the heart even if they're not popular that gives you some credibility right it gives you a few votes i'm not sure how many but 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 it does um that's sort of the happy side of macron the the, the more difficult side of people like him uh, is that um this, you know, sociology, the sociology of who uh, is at the top matters. Think of um, the uh, fight in France a year ago over fuel taxes. It is very, very hard for a guy who lives in Paris and takes a subsidized subway and is perceived as a member of the Parisian elite to tell people who drive pickup trucks in rural France, you ought to pay more tax. Uh, I'm not, of course, and my friends are not. So part of the problem uh, of, of the liberal parties is that they tend to draw their leaders from the liberal elite. Um, you know, you don't see many people who come out through the party ranks that end up running these parties. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm perfectly willing to plead guilty to that particular sin. Uh, um, uh, but uh, it is not, um, you know, it is very easy to become the victim of attacks, as Macron did, you know. Uh, one of the Gilets Jaunes said, the president is worrying about the end of the world. I am simply worrying about getting my family to the end of the month. You have nothing else to say after somebody has said that about you, right? So that's a huge vulnerability that, you know, liberals have to overcome in their fight against populism. That, I mean, that, that is, that's a political conversation stopper without uh, too many equals. That's absolutely right. Um, th thank you all very much. I should say one thing, which is that this entire um, uh, seminar is <clears throat> presided over by the benevolent deity that is Tim Besley. And um, if Tim at some point wanted to act like a deus ex machina and intervene with a question or an answer, he'd be most welcome to do so. And, and we thank him also, of course, as editor of the this great journal. Um, let, let's go now to questions. So we're in our final third uh, from 
uh, our, our audience. Uh, and let me start with one that kind of picks up the question about uh, the conditioning features of populism from, from Jeff, who, who is worried about the impact of um, robots and artificial intelligence. And you know, if the effect, in a way, Andres, as you picked up, of growing wealth is a, a disenchanted middle class or a middle class to whom other stories can be told, will wage compression as a result of that, if there is that, um, do you think fuel, is that, the, is that a potential seeding ground for a future round of populism? Um, I suppose, as, as, as the resident economist, I should try to tackle that. Um, <laughs> um, I worry a lot about the dynamics of the labor market in the future and the politics that goes with that. Um, you know, it is standard wisdom that uh, in countries like the US and the UK, changes in technology have hollowed the middle class. Um, it is middle class jobs that have disappeared. Uh, you know, very low skill jobs uh, um, uh, will not go away because of technological change. But, uh, but uh, you know, the people in the middle are the ones that are going to get squeezed. And I worry uh, about two facts. First, we're only beginning to travel down that road. It is likely that many more middle class jobs will be lost. And secondly, that ones that are coming as replacements, you know, driving Uber, uh, may pay reasonably well, but they come with huge instability, no benefits. And, you know, that became painfully evident uh, in the last three months when people driving Ubers who've been very happy uh, suddenly uh, were without an income uh, completely, no social protection, no benefit, no insurance, etc. So it is quite possible that uh, the transition into a new labor market down the road is going to be very, very painful and the politics of that uh, will be terrible. Now, the economist in me wants to say, well, we know from history that jobs get destroyed by technological change, but jobs also get created. And the name of the game, of course, is to get the transition right and do it quickly and do it, um, and do it effectively. The problem is that the politics of that is very, very hard. You know, I spent four years as a minister in Chile trying to change the labor code to make it more user-friendly for people who wanted to work part-time, for instance, or to move toward the Scandinavian model of flexicurity, uh, I got nowhere because, um, you know, the left didn't like it because there was too much market in it, and the right didn't like it because there was too much state in it. Uh, uh, and business didn't like it because, you know, uh, they thought that opening up uh, labor reform was opening up a Pandora's box. The unions didn't like it, uh, and in the end, uh, I was left there advocating why I thought it was a very good policy, but got nowhere. If that was true 10 years ago in a fairly benign political environment, I'm afraid that's very much true today in a much less benign political environment, you know, pretty much everywhere in the world. So yes, I worry a great deal about the combination of rising populism and nasty labor market dynamics. Um, well, thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, unless uh, um, I might go to, to Sarah next with another question, but as I do, if others, uh, panelists, want to pick up themes that have already been discussed, of course, please let them do that. Um, uh, uh, Sarah, this is a question, but I should say that our audience is ranging far and wide across the time zones. Uh, we have uh, uh, viewers in China, we have viewers uh, in Latin America, it's just fantastic, as well as in Europe, other parts, uh, India. Um, uh, so let's go to a question from Clayton, uh, who, uh, it's, I think a question in a way for you, Sarah, which is, um, the phenomenon or the potential phenomenon of international 
populism. As you might see, uh, if you got, for example, a protectionist backlash against globalization accelerating uh, again with some of the kind of economic effects that have, do, do, do you see any signs of, uh, as it were, populism in any distinct sense crossing from one country to another in a unified way, or are we seeing each country reacting in different ways? There's certainly a, a kind of diffusion and contagion effect that we see in that these movements uh, learn from each other. Um, in, in Europe, for example, we've seen it even in an institutional way uh, uh, at the European Parliament level, where we've seen uh, populist parties and the radical right trying to, and sometimes failing, but then trying again uh, to, to form more institutional uh, bonds in terms of Euro parties and so on. Sometimes, of course, they... Um, uh, they they have trouble because often they they advocate nationalist uh, solution to things and they're not always compatible with international um, uh, international cooperation. But where they are successful, uh, I think it's twofold. First of all, learning what sort of strategies and messages might be successful electorally, and secondly, in, as disruptors and coming in, for example, in the European Union policy processes and making it just uh, difficult to function. So in that case, we have seen examples uh, of international cooperation or of populist movement. And another international perspective on this is, of course, what it does to to, to the liberal world order, as as, as scholars like to call it, uh, international institutions. And there, we've seen that the that uh, populist parties and movements, of course, have been very consequential recently. Trump, of course, an example with the Paris Agreement, now the WHO uh, wanting to withdraw from that, which is very uh, significant. Brexit, of course, uh, our own very local and very significant example of the first member state leaving the European Union, which are going to have long-term consequences also for the EU. So, so these sort of populist movements and, and parties in that sense can have big consequences for the, for the international world order. Uh, uh, thank you very much indeed, Sarah. So again, uh, Michael, if you wanted to comment on other uh, uh, contributions, do please do so. But the question that's now come in, which I think is perhaps squarely to your earlier remarks from Carlos, which is, um, we can't, can we ignore, or should we not ignore the role of the press uh, as an abettor of populist movements or possibly in its uh, scope or potential to resist them? Is that something that uh, you see, you mentioned the importance of a free press. Do you think there's uh, ways in which that can and should be uh, addressed or supported? Is it an entirely autonomous phenomenon? How, how do those relationships and interlinkages work, do you think? Carlos, that's a great question. Um, varies from country to country. In the country where I am, Hungary, there's almost no free press left. Um, I hope it's not the case where you are. Um, the relationship between the press and politicians is antagonistic in every country. What What is, I think, really distinctive about populism in the Bolsonaro example and the Trump example in some of the, um, the Brexit politicians was making the press the, uh, the target. Um, instead of having that kind of adversarial friendly but essentially cooptative strategy that liberal democratic politicians of all stripes conservative and radical and centrist deploy which is to spar with journalists but understand they have a function um, the populist style is simply to attack them directly 
just say that they are creating a false reality. <clears throat> I'm going to mediate over your head directly to the people and speak directly to the people. So it's a kind of constant refrain to the effect, who elected you? It's a constant challenge to the very legitimacy of a free press that you see in Trump and you see in Bolsonaro and some other people. Um, and the press has to fight back. The danger, of course, for the press is the press then enlists itself in what it sees as a battle for its own survival and in the process can cease to produce the impartial evaluation of public events that a free press is supposed to do so that the, the press in the United States now is highly polarized. I, I love the New York Times, but I wouldn't tell you it's giving you the full story. I mean, it is a, it's, in, it's a committed participant as a liberal paper in a battle against a populist regime. So I think that has dangers for a free press. There are two dangers. The danger is uh, an, an, an overt attack by a populist leader on the press, and then the reaction of the press, which is to become so polarized themselves that they forget their own function, which is to, um, you know, to give liberalism a hard time or to, 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 to you know, to, to be as impartial as, as they can. So great question. Thanks for asking. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Michael. This is just a, we could run a seminar on the implications of your remarks just then. Thank you. Um, uh, we've now got, I'm delighted to say, a question from Tim uh, himself, Besley. So, Tim, do please come in and uh, tell us what we've been getting wrong. Well, I'm certainly not going to do that, but I have a question about um, the, the reaction to populism and whether one of the answers is in strengthening independent institutions and that that should be the play the people who are concerned about it uh, should be making. I mean, if we look back historically, you would say, I mean, we, we always think about electoral democracy, but the real strength of democratic institutions has been the rule of law and independent judiciary, um, the space for independent institutions in general. We've had a spate of that. We've had um, central banks are now independent, mostly throughout the world. Um, and one take, though, is that... that Populism is a kind of reaction to that, too much power by technocrats and experts. So maybe maybe that's the right take on this. Or is it that we need to create more bastions where technocracy and expert opinion is decisive? And that's the way to, to, to counter the populist tendency. And I'd love to hear what the panel have to say about that. So would I. Um, Andres, do you want to pick this up? I think it's a fascinating question. Um, I will not be the one to say that independent institutions do not matter. Of course they do. And having an independent judiciary or an independent central bank is a very good idea. But as Tim um, hinted at, relying on that and on that alone is very, very dangerous. People like Yasha Monk, who was at the LSE not too long ago, have written quite eloquently, so has Danny Roderick back at Harvard, that... Um, you know, democracy is always in tension. There's a tension between majority rule and the liberal element in democracy, which is uh, all about protection of minorities. Um, and of course, what fiscal councils or independent judiciaries uh, or electoral tribunals do is they defend the minority against the majority view. And uh, we want some of that, clearly. We do not want people voting to declare uh, somebody who's accused of a crime uh, guilty or not. 
Um, we don't want people voting on interest rates either, probably. But if the only answer of liberal Democrats is to say more liberalism, less majority rule, I'm afraid in the end we're walking into a very dark alley from which there's no escape. Um, we need some of those institutions, but I think uh, that the more, the more urgent task is not to build more of them, not to remove more and more elements of the political debate from, from the political debate, uh, but to work harder at making those institutions legitimate. Um, and this is not easy, of course, uh, because everything that you do can be undone overnight. But for instance, I think the story of central banks is not so bad. You know, 20, 25 years ago, when countries began making central banks independent, it was hotly contested. It was outrageous. Uh, most people thought that, of course, you know, monetary policy ought to be within the purview of the democratic debate. 25 years later, not that many people are saying that anymore. Maybe, you know, there will be a wave that will come back and say it in a few years. But uh, that's to some extent because central banks have been staffed by very able people, to some extent because they've wielded their power with some wisdom. Um, so making central banks legitimate uh, or making other institutions democratically legitimate, it seems to me, is a more urgent task and a better uh, defense against populism than simply attempting to put everything beyond the reach of the voter, beyond the reach of the majority. I think that's a very, very tricky road. Uh, I don't know if Sarah and uh, Michael want to comment on this, but uh, I would just say that uh, it's not an obviously winning strategy uh, to create more independent and putatively elite institutions in the face of a populist revolution, mm -hmm. although it might be quite a good thing to have in place when one has already is about to break on you. And uh, of course, it seems to me that alongside what you've said, Andres, about style and uh, narrative in politics, there also goes a kind of recurrent story. And the recurrent story is, um, you know, um, uh, you tell me your story and I will paint it as an elite experience out of touch with my own. And this is a very vulnerable approach. This is an approach that's very vulnerable to that critique. It's almost mm -hmm. as though every possible opposition can be e eaten up by that. You know, so you, as you know, it's the same as line. Look, you tell me your GDP, I'll tell you my GDP. <laughs> you tell me your inflation, I'll tell you my inflation, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, Michael and Sarah, did you want to come in on this? Just a brief, just a brief remark. I, I think the COVID-19 crisis has been absolutely fascinating revealer about uh, the contested uh, legitimacy of expertise. Um, I just think the public thinks two things at once. It, it wants to believe that there is a thing called epidemiology, there is a thing called medicine and science, and there are certain people who know stuff. And uh, I think the public is prepared to follow. What the public has also discovered, however, is that epidemiologists disagree and doctors can sometimes be absolutely dumbfounded by the emergent uh, pathology of, a, of, a, of an illness. And then in a social media world, there are 26 doctors. There's not just one. Mm -hmm. The old can canonical expert, you know, who in a white coat, who then tells the public what they should believe and politicians genuflect, it, all that's gone. It's now uh, a much more... Um, um, kind of free market experience in which, in fact, the private conduct of, of experts is subject to scrutiny. Their consistency with uh, with um, isolation regimes is subject to scrutiny. And I actually think all of this ends up being pretty good. 
pretty good in the sense that um, scientific expertise, medical expertise has been stress tested in the rough and tumble of, of political deliberation. And the scientists have learned, I think, that when they start making political decisions, they get it wrong. That is, they, they've often strayed off their, their mark, as it were. Um, politicians have shamelessly used uh, science to pass off what they uh, want to get through the public. But I think it's been a, it's been a, it, there's 10 years worth of social science figuring out what the hell happened in the last six months in the relationship between politics and science, the legitimacy of science, getting back to Tim's question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think that the, the end of the story here is to say, your guess is as good as mine. I think that COVID-19 is confirming to every citizen, there are some facts that just happen to be true about this bloody disease. And if you don't listen and pay attention, you might die. And, you know, so that's the core where we got some secure knowledge. But the politics of this back and forward, uh, I think, has put the legitimacy of science and expertise under stress as never before. And I actually think that's been an extremely positive result. Um, these people have been knocked off certain pedestals, and it was long overdue. And, and what the public has understood is that science is a debate. Science is a democratic debate. Science a, a properly scientific debate about COVID-19 is a kind of paradigm of what a democratic deliberation ought to be. And it has the difference with a democratic deliberation is that some actual answers are true and others are actually false. So I find it fascinating, this stuff, and I hope it uh, teaches us all to, to rethink this, the role of expertise in a democratic society. Sorry to go on so long. No, no, that's great. And and Sarah? Um, just briefly, going back to, to Tim's question, I, th- I think the more we are living in this more fragmented, more polarized political reality, the more important these independent institutions become, in the sense that not that they should take over the role uh, of democratically elected politicians that are important, but just perhaps temper and rein in some of the excesses and I think I had I'd hoped that Michael might have reflected a bit on you know the the Hungarian experience because I think certainly we've seen it um, in the US that the checks and balances and institution there have ensured that some of the policies that might otherwise have happened didn't happen Um, and so it's this balance between uh, and this is really at the heart of populism because the heart of populism is no it's the will of the people you know at any one in time that is just should be constrained by any um by any rule of law by any balance of powers and this is where of course it's at odds with liberal democratic values which is no there should be some kind of checks and balances minority rights and so on and so as we will see potentially more of these populist disruptions in the future i think having that those checks and balances and having those independent institutions are important Right, thank you. Um, uh, so now I have another question uh, from a question from Rui, uh, who is asking. I think if if you don't mind, Sarah, I might go back to you because of your international experience. Which is, but I, I ask everyone, which is, if you look out over the the as it were the world, which countries most worry you from the perspective of uh, potential populist uh, uh, activity? If if worry is the right word, which which countries excite you or interest you from that perspective? 
Well, I think I'm sure that uh, Andres can talk to uh, <laughs> to the world and, and especially Latin America, of course, that has a proud and not so proud history of um, of populism and also uh, India and so on. I mean, in Europe, of course, what we have is which within our own sort of backyard, real concerns about democratic backsliding in both Hungary and, and, and Poland, of course, that, that poses very interesting and difficult challenges uh, for the European Union, which was something that just this uh, very weak in terms of the budget, you know, the rule of law within the European Union, is that a real thing or do we not care? Um, and so I think it's not just when we go to countries we normally associate uh, with democratic backsliding that we need to be concerned. It's, you know, it's something that could exist. And there comes in this question of not only national independent institution, but what is also the role of international institutions like the EU? Does it have a role uh, at all in trying to stem these things? Or does that just make it, you know, exactly what, 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 is it that overreaching, uh, massive overreaching by by uh, by an international institution to go in and have an opinion, for example, on what goes on in Hungary or, or, or Poland? So that's a real dilemma that I think we'll we will see more of in the years to come, just in our own backyard in in Europe. That's that's very interesting, um, M Michael or Andres. Would you like to just very pick up this uh, to pick up uh, on what Sarah said? Um, and this is a completely elitist, unapologetically elitist suggestion. I just think that the pushback against uh, majoritarian consolidation of, of, of authority passes crucially through professions, through lawyers, through doctors, through professional associations, through, we talked about independent institutions, but the lesson out of Hungary is how weak these institutions have been in pushing back. Uh, the judges have folded. Uh, they did not fold in Poland. The legal profession in Poland has fought for the whole period. So you have to have elites that step up and defend their institutions and do so without apology. You know, the media, everybody hates the media, but if the media doesn't stand up and defend themselves, we'll lose free media. If, if, Everybody hates the law and the legal profession and all these high-paid lawyers, but unless the law legal profession is tough enough, strong enough, militant enough to frankly defend its privileges, this is the irony. I mean, they're, they're often just defending their own interests. But in so doing, indirectly, um, they have an effect of, of, of defending democracy. And it's the weakness of these elite institutions, their supine uh, character that worries me. And, and, and it means that to the question of Europe, which Sarah raised, I'm extremely skeptical that Europe's going to do a damn thing about Poland and Hungary. I just think what is going to tip Hungary back onto the democratic path is, is Hungarians. And it will be led by essentially liberal elites saying we've had enough. We're, we're suffocating. We're drowning. We can't, we can't live with ourselves. Uh, and I think that will make the change, but it'll take a while. It's not from the benevolence of the judges, but from their self-interest that we can expect uh, uh, an improvement. Andres? Uh, I seem to recognize the source of that quote. Yes, um, <laughs> someone very dear to you. Uh, no, um, I, let me go back to something Michael said two minutes ago. Yes, the elites ought to stand up. The problem is the elites are terrified because the elites are uh, living through two simultaneous processes. The first one is that they look at polls 
and every elite today is under fire. Uh, I was looking, uh, there's a pan-Latin American poll that asks, how much do you trust the following institutions? Congress, political parties, the government, but also, you know, trade unions, business leaders, media, etc. In most Latin American countries, people reporting that they have some or a lot of trust in any of those institutions do not reach 20%. So first fact is that the elites know how to read the polls and they say, people don't like me. Secondly, the elites all have an iPhone uh, and they look at Twitter and uh, everything that they say or don't say, and this is true for politicians, but also for the guy who runs the trade association or the business association or the business lobby or the uh, anchor person on TV is, um, I will be judged instantaneously. Within 30 seconds, I will know whether people on Twitter liked or did not like what uh, I said. And as a result, you get a very nasty dynamic because um, on the one hand, institutions are not um, light. Uh, people don't trust them. But of course, if you don't trust an institution, that institution is going to become much less effective. You know, if you trust the police, the police will, are going to have a pretty easy time combating violence. If nobody trusts the police, if they get no tips, if there's a riot and nobody respects the cops, then the police is going to be much less effective. And as a result, next time around, it will be less trusted. This has been very evident in fighting the pandemic in countries in which people trusted the authorities, trusted the medical establishment, the medical establishment said stay home and people stayed home. Uh, and you get, a, you get a virtuous circle because a month later, or a week later, the numbers are good and contagion, people are not dying. So they say, oh, I was right in trusting these guys. And countries uh, like Brazil, for instance, where nobody trusts anybody, um, people have gone out, uh, contagion has spiked, and people say, oh, I was right not to trust these people. Look, they give us advice and the country's going to the dogs. Uh, so this combination of uh, distrusted elites, elites that because of that distrust are very bad at doing their job uh, and everybody being terrified because Twitter is going to say nasty things about them, uh, leads to A, uh, a vicious circle of, uh, of, of uh, disappearing legitimacy uh, and along with that some very bad policy, um, a very bad policy uh, decisions. And that's not a bad way to describe where I see Latin America going nowadays, uh, particularly some of the big countries, Brazil uh, and Mexico in particular. Well, that's been a fantastic uh, way. We need to bring this to a, a halt, tragically. I'm going to hand over to Tim in a second. But before I do so, let me just um, thank all of those who put in questions. They've been absolutely brilliant and testimony to the worldwide reach of the LSE and the brilliance of its audience. And um, let me also shout out quickly to Deborah, who I, whose question I didn't get to ask, which is to ask really whether the idea of populism, populism isn't itself a fake thing to disguise the failure of, uh, as it were, regular, ordinary working democracies. Such a good question. I wish we could get to it, Deborah. I'm so sorry we can't. Let me thank all the panelists for their wonderful contributions and it's very, very stimulating debate and pass things back over now to Tim uh, for a final roundup. Uh, well, thank you, Jesse, and thanks to Michael, Andres, and Sarah for, for what has been a really intoxicating discussion. Uh, I feel like there's so much swirling around in my in my head. And I should uh, say I was somewhat remiss in, in, in my introduction in not thanking the Spinoza Foundation, which I, I noted you, you did, Jesse, for supporting uh, this, this event. Um, I was very struck uh, partway through that this was both a timeless debate and a timely debate. It's a kind of, you can imagine being here 100 years ago 
having similar discussions around the very nature of our societies and our democracies with both philosophical, historical, economic, and political inputs in the way that they were meshed together in this wonderful way by all of our, our speakers and by the discussion today. So in that sense, completely timeless. On the other hand, also timely. I mean, the crisis we're living through um, requires solutions to all of the challenges that were raised today. And uh, I suppose in microcosm, that's uh, exactly how academic institutions like the LSE that have engaged with the world and continue to engage with the world have to make a contribution. And this journal, we hope, will be an important part of that. The, the school made a major investment uh, in uh, creating a school of public policy and uh, in its wisdom it appointed Andres to lead that initiative. Uh, and this journal is a natural consequence of of that uh, building. And the LSE has always reached out in, into the world, but nothing could illustrate that better, I think, than the conversation we've all ha uh, been privileged to listen to today and to learn from. And uh, this will be, I think, the first of many launch events. Um, we would all wish we'd been there in person to debating, to be debating on a stage. And uh, but, but I think uh, with the power of technology raised during the uh, during the uh, the questions, we have benefited from that today and been able to do this in spite of uh, being in the middle of this pandemic. So thank you again to everybody for their uh, wonderful contributions and for you, Jesse, in really adding value to all of that as well. So thank you very much to everyone for, for joining and please join us again and keep an eye on the LSE website to, to, to look out for more events. Bye-bye.